Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. I am Matt Zemek, uh, filling in for my partner, Saqib Ali. And uh, it is the tennis off season. It's a great time to broaden our focus on our show. Uh, tennis instruction is something that we haven't ordinarily featured on our podcast. So we want to make that part of our menu today. And to do that, we have a special treat for you. We encourage you to listen to the various other Radio Influence podcasts because Radio Influence uh, is producing this podcast and it's really helped this podcast to grow. And one of the many great Radio Influence podcasts out there, in addition to Tennis with an Accent, is the Jim Fannin Show. Uh, at, at, at It's a production of Radio Influence. You can also find Jim Fannin's work, spoken and written and otherwise, at jimfannin.com. And we are thrilled to welcome Jim Fannin to our podcast. Hello, Jim. Oh, hello. I'm excited. Tennis, I mean, what, what's not to like? Uh, that's, uh, uh, that is my favorite sport. And um, yeah, I've been a tennis player uh, for over 50 years. And, and a tennis player for over 50 years and a tennis coach with significant achievements that have branched far beyond tennis into other sports. So let's start our conversation simply by enabling you to, to tell listeners who is Jim Fannin, especially for the younger folks in the crowd who don't remember tennis uh, in its 1970s tennis boom uh, here in the United States and into the early 1980s. You have a very rich history in the game share that story and all the ways it's it has helped you in, in your life and your career and whatever else you want to say about your story as a as a coach of tennis and a coach of so many things beyond that well i you know i started like everybody I, you know i, I started in a, a ymca tennis program pretty in, in eastern kentucky of all places appalachia you wouldn't think of appalachia as producing tennis players but um uh, you know, once I graduated, I got a scholarship in tennis, which was the only way I could go. But once I graduated, I went out and played on the tour for a year. Uh, and and then I swiftly uh, realized that my calling was coaching. And uh, uh, my first experience, uh, there was a South African player named Bernie Mitten, and he was in the top 50 already. Uh, so he came to me and he said, uh, hey, why don't you coach me? Uh, and I said, oh, okay. I, so I'm thinking about it. I, you know, we were friends. And he said, I got $1,500 to my name. If I don't win my next tournament, I, I'm going to be back uh, as a policeman like my father back in Joburg. And I said, well, why would I want to coach you? You don't have any money. How are you going to pay me? So we were laughing. And he said, I'll give you 15% of everything I win. I go, singles and doubles? He said, singles and doubles. So we shook hands, and within seconds of shaking hands, he goes, I have some bad news. And I go, wait a minute, we just got started. What's the bad news? He goes, I play Connor's first round next tournament. Wow. I go, you're a dog. <laughs> you <know? laughs> I said, but, you know, I played Connor's. Uh, a couple of months ago, I can beat him. I'm 100% certain I can beat him, but I can't beat him with my game. I know I can beat him with your game. So we started practicing uh, uh, some tactics and strategy to beat Connors, number one player in the world at the time. 
And uh, we just went over those tactics and we went over what adjustments we went to, we needed to, to make uh, if certain things happened. And, and he got into uh, uh, a zone mindset. And uh, that's another subject that I, I definitely want to get into. Uh, but part of the strategy was to play slow to, to uh, Connor's forehand. Uh, if Connor's did come to the net, uh, we would pass uh, forehand down the line to Connor's forehand volley. We'd pass cross court to for, uh, Connor's forehand volley. He had kind of a funky uh, grip, not a real great continental grip on a forehand volley. And, uh, and if we attacked, we actually attacked with no pace, obviously deep, but with no pace. And we upset him. So my first coaching on the pro tour, we defeated, defeated Connors. And that, that sent shockwaves through, uh, uh, you know, through the entire tour. And at that time, there were only, and I was a full-time coach. I traveled full-time, 48 weeks a year. But at that time, there were only two full-time coaches on the entire tour, Jan Tiriak and, and me. And, and very quickly, uh, I started coaching Phil Dent, Kim Warwick, uh, the Aussies. Uh, you know, I picked up Adriana Panada. Uh, so I eventually coached seven guys and, and gals in, in the top ten in the world. And um, I, I did that full time for almost a decade uh, until I, I bought a tennis club. And uh, we had the largest junior tennis program uh, in the world at that time. We had... Uh, 1,500 full-time uh, kids coming in three, four times a week at our club. It was all juniors. And um, that's really how I got started. So of the many experiences you've had in tennis and which have branched out into other sports, but, you know, tennis being your first love, uh, share some of your most memorable stories in a, in a life around tennis. I mean, obviously you have a lot of them, but uh, I'm sure some come to mind more than others. Uh, well, I have a lot I can't tell you, <laughs> but uh, I have some crazy ones. I, I will tell you the three most embarrassing times in my coaching career are in tennis. So I, I'll give you some insight. Uh, I'm uh, in the coach's box, center court, Wimbledon, and I'm coaching Phil Dent, the young Aussie. And he's going up against the legend and would-be uh, Hall of Famer Tony Roach. So they're playing first round center court Wimbledon. Now, to put this in perspective, Roach had just won Queens Club the week before. So even though it was the tail end of Roach's career, he's formidable. He's still a top 10 player. And uh, so the match began. And um, uh, as everyone knows, coaching uh, with signals is illegal. That's another story. Uh, I, I had a little tiff with the ATP. Uh, because they uh, uh, were allowing Tyriac to give signals and not say anything. And I, I, I protested a couple of uh, matches ago. This guy's doing everything but hold up signs on what to do against my players. And the ATP basically said, uh, do what you got to do. We can't prove it. I'm like, oh, okay, I got it. So I am giving signals, I, I will tell you, and uh, – even though in the rules that you weren't supposed to, but they gave me the green light, I guess, in Rome to do what the Romans do. So I'm, I'm giving signals during this match at Wimbledon, Phil Dent, my guy playing against Tony Roach. And in the fifth set, the match is stopped. Roach goes to the umpire and the umpire Roach turns and points to me 
And I'm looking around because I can't believe that they're pointing to me. And now the entire center court audience is looking to me. And uh, here comes an official down to the box. And the, the ATP official comes up and says, Tony Roach believes that you've hypnotized him and that he can't play and he wants the match defaulted. I'm like, what? Hypnotized him? And then I realized uh, what had happened. I knew to- uh, Roach was very superstitious. And, uh, you know, my guy kept looking up in the stands at me. So all of a sudden Roach was looking up and I'm looking at Roach. Uh, you know, I'm right by the court. And Roach thought I actually had hypnotized him, which is crazy, right? That's so nuts, yeah. It's nuts. So I turned to the ATP official and I go, I, I didn't admit that I was or I wasn't. I said, tell Tony Roach to not look up here. And, and that was it. So Roach was freaked out and uh, he loses in the fifth set to my guy. Big upset. We go back into the locker room. And this happened for the rest of the time I was on tour. Anytime I was in the locker room, if Roach came in, he would immediately leave. And and the rumor was, don't look this guy in the eye. And, <laughs> and, and, and I, for whatever reason, Matt, I wear all black. I look like Johnny Cash. So it could be 100 degrees, 110 in Australia. I would have all black and sunglasses. And I didn't talk to a lot of people. So, uh, and our practices, once I build up, we eventually had eight guys on a little traveling uh, team. Uh, we didn't let anybody come to our practices. We did things in secret. And my guys made, made a decision. If people think that Jim Fannin can do that, let them think it. That'll give us an edge. Uh, but that was one of my most embarrassing moments of, uh, you know, it's like that, uh, that commercial, want to get away? Absolutely. Looking. There was another instance in um, Hong Kong. I'm coaching Kim Warwick, who was a great Aussie. And I I helped Kim. uh, I coached him to the Australian uh, Open finals. Uh, I I don't remember 78, 79, but uh, against Arthur Ashe. But we're in Hong Kong and Kim had uh, beaten his opponent ever since he was a junior. So he's playing against Ross Case, fellow Australian, and uh, we're winning. And Kim Warwick hits a ball, and um, it's overruled by the umpire. Very questionable. Break point, and we're still up. We were up two breaks, but the you know it, anyway, it was controversial. And I looked at Kim Warwick from uh, from the bo- coach's box, and I realized something just snapped in his brain. He had this crazy look. And so the next time he serves, he hits a rocket first serve over the umpire's head, misses him by a foot, tried to take him out of the out of the umpire chair. And it was a stoic British umpire. The, the umpire goes, fault? <laughs> now, just, just now, before you continue with the story, just for our listeners, this is kind of like a Dennis Shapovalov moment, you know, who hit a ball at, at a chair umpire. But this was like, you know, 40 years ago, something like this happened. So please continue. Same thing. So uh, second, sir, and I, I'm in shock. It's obviously he's trying to take the umpire out. <laughs> and uh, so uh, second serve, he rams one into the umpire's chair. And the umpire, very stoic, no expression, goes, double fault. 
love 15. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God. So I knew my guy had snapped. Then he calls for all the balls. Give me all the balls on the court. So all the ball, and I'm like, oh my goodness. And, and Warwick then proceeds to hit every ball out of the stadium. Out of the stadium. Boom, boom. We now have no balls. There's not one ball. Uh, and, and eventually uh, he gets uh, he gets defaulted. Uh, we go into the locker room, and I he'd smashed a racket. And I looked at him, and he goes, I'm tired. I'm going home. <laughs> now we'd been on the road probably. We'd probably played way too many tournaments in a row. I think we played seven or eight tournaments in a row. And then my my last most uh, embarrassing moment. And if Peter Fleming, if you're listening to this, you know what you did. So I'm coaching Peter Fleming. Obviously, uh, Peter was. Uh, uh, number eight in the world in, in, uh, on the ATP tour, but he was number one in the world in doubles, won Wimbledon with McEnroe four times. We're in Vegas. Uh, Peter's playing uh, Bob Lutz, another American, and he's winning. Uh, my guy's winning. Again, I'm in the coach's box, and Peter hits a first serve that goes over the baseline. And it was so, I mean, how do you do that? I mean, uh, a 3.0 club player's, not going to hit a serve over the ba- past the service box over the baseline. He then hits a second serve rocket, doesn't let up actually <laughs> near the service line, love 15. He hits uh, two more serves uh, at love 15 uh, that were missed by a mile. Uh, he's now double faulted twice. He then double faults, same way, doesn't let up, doesn't spin the second one in. So we're down love 30, and then Peter yells out at the top of his lung, my serve sucks, and there's my coach. Oh, my gosh. And so he points to me in the stand. There's about 6,000 in the audience. Everybody turns to look at me, and and, and I'm like, oh, my God, I want to kill him, right? And uh, I'm so embarrassed. He then double faults four times, gets broken. We lose the match. Uh, yeah, those are my three most embarrassing moments in tennis. So pretty crazy. Very crazy. Now let, let's flip it to the other side, to the to the great moments, the mountaintop moments. You, know, you coached Italy to the 1979 Davis Cup final, uh, and you had the experience of beating the Czechs uh, in the semifinals at the Foro Italico. You've coached Adriano Panada during his 1970s heyday. Take us through some of those experiences and some moments that stand out and perhaps how they uh, elevated your coaching career and gave you uh, better insight into how to tap into the zone. Adriano Panada was uh, an amazing athlete and um, uh, he could get himself in trouble on the court uh, by making some uh, lots of unforced errors. But when he was pressured, even behind in a match, he had some miraculous comebacks. I mean, unbelievable. And he had one actually against Kim Warwick. He was down 11 match points, saved them all. And the last match point hits the net and kind of crawls down the net, 
rolls over on the other side to save, uh, a, a, you know, one of the match points. And uh, he did came back and won the, the Italian. He won the French back-to-back. So his comebacks were phenomenal. And the Italians would start chanting Adriano and the place would go berserk. And then he would start chipping, charging, uh, making these amazing comebacks. One match at the U.S. Open against Connors, um, and, and we had beaten Connors uh, uh, a few times uh, badly, uh, Panada. Uh, he had a slice backhand that he, it was like a knife uh, that he would approach. But we had a match at the U.S. Open, a historic match, five-setter against Connors. That's when Connors hit a miraculous one-handed backhand. Connors obviously two-handed backhand around the net post uh, to basically save the match. And then, in like Connors style, he fist pumps 360 degrees to get the New York crowd uh, absolutely jacked up. And uh, we lost that in five sets. But that was one of the greatest matches. But Panada was a an absolute warrior on the court. And so was that Davis Cup team in 79. It, it was uh, Paolo Bertolucci played doubles with Adriano, and it was uh, Berezuti, a top 10 player in the world, uh, Zugarelli. Uh, they were uh, an emotional, passionate uh, team, and uh, beating the Czechs uh, in Fort Italico was – uh, was definitely special, and I don't know how you'd win in for Italia call against the, the Italians because the place was raucous. It was nuts, and um, that's what I love about uh, about Davis Cup. You know, the fans get into it even more playing for the country. So, so you know, Jim, I, Jim, can I can I ask you specifically about uh, Corrado Barazuti being beating Ivan Lendl seven five in the fifth to clinch that tie? Can you? Do you have a specific recollection of that match and what you were telling uh, Barazuti during that match? Well, you know, Barazuti, uh, he was a little soldier. And the key to him was to stay in the present, not go into the past. And uh, that was his M.O. He would get upset. He would go into the past, sometimes go into the future. Uh, but the key to him was just to stay locked in one point at a time. Uh, he made no mistakes. Now, I, I will tell you something, and that's how he won that match. He, he just made no unforced errors, and he was totally a warrior. Kept his game plan very simple, uh, took very little to no risk. Um, once he – and I, I want to go away from Davis Cup. Once he realized that he won 80% of the points when he went to the net – now, the reason he did is he didn't go to the net very often. He decided on his own, against my wishes, that I'm going to go to the net a lot, and that's how I'm going to go from six in the world to number one in the world. And um, I warned him against that. I said, that's not who you are. That's not your style. I think you keep it the same. He wanted to go to the net even more, and uh, and that's what he did. And within 24 months, and I, I we uh, parted ways amicable but we did part ways we had a philosophical difference and uh, within 24 months he was off the tour so you know you you can change tactics you can change uh your strategy uh you don't change your style and um 
you know, there's three basic styles in tennis. Uh, it's all based on time. If I do a drop hit baseline to baseline, it, it, if a medium speed, it takes 1,001, 1,002, two seconds for the ball to go baseline to baseline. If you come to the net and hit a volley and I'm on the baseline, it's one second by the time the ball goes from the net player uh, to the backcourt player. Uh, so one style is to give your opponent no time. Take the ball on the rise, uh, stand closer to the baseline, give them no time. Uh, the other style is to give yourself a lot of time. Stand further from the baseline, um, in trouble, play the ball slow, higher, uh, obviously it depends on the surface, and uh, to give yourself more time. And then the third style, which is a McEnroe style, uh, is and a Federer style is I can do both styles and I can stay back and beat you. I can go to the net and beat you. So Berezuti, uh his style was to give himself more time, uh, play better defense. And when he tried to change styles, uh, that really uh, sent him off the tour in terms of winning. Sure. So um, I know that, you know, Saka, it wasn't able to join this podcast, but off uh, off air, he wanted me to include this question in our podcast, and that is, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, but I wanted you to go into more detail about it, Jim. Uh, you know, you coached against Connors a lot in the 1970s, and you found a game plan and a way to beat him. So the question Sakib wanted me to ask is, and, and I think it's a good one, when you're coaching players against legends such as Connors. Are you focused on telling your player, your charge, how to maximize his own strengths, or are you focusing on how to exploit that great player's weaknesses? What 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 was your general approach to playing uh, elite players when you were when you were a coach? Well, you need to deal from strength in every sport, and you wrap uh, your game around what you do best. And uh, you know, and if you've got a big forehand and you're, that's your strength. And in fact, even if you have a match and you're a club player and the day before a big match and you go out to practice, practice your strengths. And that's what we did. So that would be my first, uh, uh, always deal from strength against Lindell who had a big forehand. There's so many players today that have monster forehands, uh, big ones. And backhands are good, don't get me wrong, but, you know, they're making their bread and butter uh, money on uh, the forehand. Against Lindell, we we attacked Lindell's forehand right off the bat. Uh, We went after it. Uh, I told him we're going into the teeth of a lion, so we need to be very focused in the first three games. And by attacking uh, a player's strengths in singles, what it does it makes them run the longest distance to their weaker flank. So if you're playing somebody that's got a big forehand, they run around the backhand, and you're trying to squeeze it into the backhand, I, I think that's a mistake. I'd go after their strengths, and that that's how we had uh, some success against the big forehands, and Linda was one of them. I coached against him quite a bit. So it's and, tough. And, sure. Well, and, and you know, so – I mean, against Connors, there was definitely something to exploit. And in, in particular, as you mentioned, the lack of pace. So uh, was, there a, was there a match from your coaching career? And you can pick any player uh, that you've coached, which particularly uh, epitomized uh, how, to, how to merge 
you know, boosting up your player's strength and, and picking on an opposing player's weaknesses? What, what was one of the, the better examples of, you know, bringing everything that you had to the table as a coach? Well, you know, in, in the in the year that Panada uh, lost to Connors at the U.S. Open, uh, uh, the round I believe before that, or maybe two rounds before that, and I think that was in the quarters or semis, uh, the Connors match, which was one of the greatest U.S. Open matches. It, it's definitely in the top ten uh, of all time. Uh, we played a serve and volleyer, Marty Reeson, and uh, who was formidable at that time. Great player. Um, and Panada had uh, a great slice backhand. Uh, the, the adjustment during the match was to not hit the big, big passing shot. It was to finesse the passing shot. And so he started slicing the passes instead of rolling over it and, and, and take some pace off of it. And almost immediately, Reeson started netting volleys, hitting volleys short, uh, because the slice, if you barely miss hit it, uh, it would come off the racket in low. Not, not, it, it, he wouldn't be able to penetrate as much, and he had to do more. And uh, that little tiny change really changed the entire match. Um, I've seen some pretty amazing uh, strategies. I saw one I, I think everybody will appreciate. Uh, there was a, a young player that had a big serve, uh, a big, you know, big serve and volley, big game, and he's playing against Nastasi. And I traveled around with Nastasi; he's a good friend of uh, Adriano. And um, during the warm-up, uh, first, first tournament, this guy came out on the tour. Um, during the warm-up, he points his finger to the sky, you know, give me some lobs for some overheads. And Nastasi goes, "No lob, no lob. I don't, I don't lob. No lob, no lob." And so the young player is confused, and Nastasi refused to give him a lob so he can hit an overhead in the warm-up. And, and we're, we're watching the match laughing. No lob, no lob, no, I don't, no, I don't lob, no lob, no lob, no, no lob. And so we knew what was going to happen. Very first game, uh, the young guy's serving, and uh, Nastasi lobs Every is serving volley. It was indoors in Stockholm, Stockholm Open. And uh, every volley, he didn't hit a pass. He lobbed every single ball. And uh, the guy the guy hit overhead winners, but it backed him off the net. He stopped closing. And then the second time, Nastasi passed him on every flank. And uh, that was a match where I went, that was awesome. <laughs> so, you know, there's two ways to win in tennis. One of them is to go out there and just execute and beat them and make no mistakes, hit winners when they're available. Uh, that's how a lot of players, especially amateurs, that's how we try to win, right? But the best way to win is let them lose. And that's what uh, really uh, Nastasi did and all my guys we would let the guy lose to us and the one thing we realized before every match my guys were mentally stronger than their opponents almost all of the time not not every time uh, but we knew how to get in the zone but more importantly we could get 
the opponent out of the zone. And, and that's really where the game is played today. You know, everybody's got the same basic strokes, basic serve. Everybody's got strengths. Um, who's mentally uh, the toughest? Who on moments of truth, a 15-30, 4-3, uh, who needs to uh, hold serve, for example? Uh, the person that executes the basics when the money's on the table picks up the money. And the best don't do more than they need to do. Everybody else that loses, well, they try to do more than they need to do in those big moments. And um, I, I want to give the listeners maybe one more tip. You know about taking serve and holding serve, right, Matt? Absolutely. Uh, uh, holding serve, get that out of your mindset. It's the most ridiculous term in tennis. Now think about this. I'm playing really well. And my serve, first serve's going in. Uh, the first ball after the serve, I'm definitely putting the ball in play. Uh, I have the advantage because I get to stand in the middle of the court. My opponent has to stand in a corner. That's really the main advantage of the server. And, and so I'm going to hit two balls every time, and I'm taking serve. Now I'm up by four, and I need to hold serve. Well, holding something is defensive. How many times have you needed in your mind to hold serve? And just like that, you're down love 30. So if we're up a break, we did not hold serve. We took serve. That was our mentality. We take serve. We don't hold serve. And just that little shift in your mindset, that's how you can close someone out. Because holding serve, well, it's defensive. Uh, the energy's on me because I'm holding serve. And that brings me to uh, uh, another tip. I'm going to ask the audience this. You have two sides of the net. Which side's more important, the other side, your opponent's side, or your side? And I, I want everybody to think about that. Two sides of the net, the other side, my opponent, or my side. And I ask that to every pro. And I can't tell you how many people said, well, my side. You know, my forehand, my backhand. The truth is the other side is more important because the other side is your information center. If uh, my opponent takes the ball on the rise, I got to move quicker to the ball. Uh, if my opponent takes a volley, I may have to shorten up my backswing because I've got less time, maybe a second to react, get there and execute the pass. So the other side of the net um, if you're an amateur player right now, when you've been in the zone, you didn't think about your side at all. You didn't think about your forehand, your backhand. You didn't think I'm late. All your energy was focused on the other side of the net. You're seeing the ball bounce. You're seeing if they take it early or not. And uh, getting your energy on the other side, that's how you run somebody out of a match. That's how you close out a match. And holding serve is not conducive to doing that. Jim, that's fantastic. And it leads me to really the second part of the conversation, which is the bridge from your experiences in tennis history to more applied tennis instruction. And the, the, the centerpiece of tennis instruction that, that you have to offer, or at least one of the centerpieces, is this concept that you've been mentioning. And it's something that you talk about on, on the Jim Fannin Show and at jimfannin.com is the zone. So very simply, start with the basics, 
tell tell our listeners what the zone means and and particularly how it's applied in tennis. You've kind of touched on it, but let's just nail down the concept of the zone and what it means. The zone is physical and mental. There's a lot of confusion with a lot of people. They think it's all mental. If I'm in the zone or you're in the zone, your jaw is always unhinged. If you have a clenched jaw, you will not get in the zone. A clenched jaw will allow, uh, will have referral. You'll tense up your hands. And when you make contact, you may squeeze a little too tightly. That'll cause the racket to move and you'll miss hit. The jaw is always unhinged when you're in the zone. Another phenomenon about the zone is that your eyes double or triple shutter speed. That gives you the illusion everything's in slow motion. So the ball looks like a grapefruit and some guy can hit a rocket serve, but it doesn't seem fast. When your eyes get into that double shutter speed, it actually appears much slower than it really is. The other part about the zone, your stomach, uh, the blood vessels and the capillaries in your stomach, they constrict and it diverts all the blood to your brain so you have clarity and the rest of the blood goes to your large muscles in your body, shoulders, hips, buttocks, uh, so that you have inordinate quickness, speed, agility, and strength. So uh, that's what the butterflies really is. You're not nervous. You're not nervous. That's your body preparing for the zone, and that's the blood in your stomach being diverted to the rest of your body. And so that when the capillaries constrict, you feel the butterflies, and you're not nervous, however. The zone will arrive, so you just need to relax. Also, when you're in the zone, right now the listeners are breathing on average um, probably 15, 16 breaths per minute. If you are anxious, panicky, worrying, your breath per minute may go up to 20 breaths per minute. But when you're in the zone, you're breathing deeper, more oxygen, and you're giving uh, longer exhales. You're actually breathing under 10 breaths per minute. So if you're in a challenge and you're not in the zone, first thing I would do is unhinge my jaw, uh, relax, breathe more deeply, slow your breathing down, and then get your energy on the other side. And there's another phenomenon, though, about the zone. Uh, you have the least amount of thoughts. You're definitely not into the past. Uh, in fact, you only uh, go into the past after the match for strategy or uh, for um, analysis. And you don't go into the future except for tactics uh, or strategy change. Um, so the zone is the present tense. You're locked into the moment. And uh, it's really the only place to be. And, I, and I've seen uh, tennis players. Peter Fleming got in the zone for 28 days. And he went from... It still may be a record. He went. He had an injury, couldn't play for a long time. His ranking dropped below 500. Uh, and in about 30 days, he went to number eight in the world, uh, beating uh, McEnroe twice uh, and, and just winning two tournaments, and his ranking shot up. But he was in the zone, not just in tennis. He was in the zone in other aspects of his life. So the zone is a purposeful calm uh, it's a feeling that nothing can go wrong, and uh, athletes all over the world uh, come in because we have a formula uh, that uh, research was done in 1974 with some 
uh, professors at Ohio State University, independent of the university, I funded it on how to uh, attract super learning. That's really where this started. I discovered, Matt, five markers that uh, the great athletes all have. And these markers trigger chemicals that once they're in your body simultaneously, here comes the zone. That's your best matches, that's your best wins, that's your best stretches of play. The markers are self-discipline, and that's just a willingness or commitment to stay with the task to reach well-defined goals. What are those goals? Uh, targets on the other side of the net, well-defined targets, a tennis ball when you serve, um, a small hula hoop sized target when you're hitting your ground strokes. Um, it's well-defined and you have that commitment to those targets, tactics, strategy. Second's concentration, that's focusing mental and physical energy. Uh, when you're in that flow of concentration, you're hitting every ball well out in front of you. Um, you're sending energy with your weight transfer, your follow through, everything's flowing to targets. The third marker is optimism. That's, you, you don't just believe you can do it. You don't just expect to do it. You know you can do it. There's a big difference uh, of believing you're gonna beat somebody you're playing. It's a big difference if you expect it and it's an even bigger difference if you know it. That takes uh, some mental training to get to that point, especially against someone you've never beaten before. To, to get that hurdle. And the two other markers are relaxation, that's getting your breathing six to eight breaths a minute, jaw and hinge. And the last one's enjoyment. And you gotta love the challenge of being down two breaks. Love the challenge of uh, the third set and uh, not be upset about it. Uh, if you're playing at your best in the zone state, uh, if you miss a shot, you're not gonna roll your eyes or bang your racket. Now you've gone into the past, you go into the past, the zone is gone. So the, the key here is to thread points in a row over games. Points in a row over games, staying in the present tense. Um, and, and that's a tennis in the zone program that I have to help people get into that mindset. And it's for an amateur, it's for a young junior, even eight years old can get into the zone. Uh, all the way up to the number one player in the world. So the zone is, uh, uh, as Michael Jordan told me to my face once, I know the zone, the great Chicago Bulls player basketball, I know the zone, I can put it on like an overcoat. And it's a real phenomenon, physical and mental. Everybody listening, it's not just for superstar athletes. You can get in the zone in business, in life, definitely in your tennis. So Jim, let me follow up on a few things here because there's so much so much good stuff to explore. So one thing with the relaxation of the jaw, the, the thought that comes to mind for me with that is that that suggests, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that the notion of trying is a negative. You know, I think a lot of casual sports fans will say that trying hard is exactly what they admire in an athlete, but the relaxation of the jaw seems to militate against that thought that, you know, obviously the athlete should put forth a lot of effort, but the, the athlete can't consciously tell him or herself to try harder. That, and that's, that's a negative. Explain more about the notion of trying too hard and why that inhibits 
a player from getting into the zone as opposed to promoting a zone mentality? Try. T-R-Y. To ruin yourself. The best in the world in any sport do not try in the conventional sense of furrowing your brow and clenching your fists. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have a fist pump. Don't get me wrong. But the best in the world look like they're effortless, like they're not trying. Now, there's intensity. That's energy inside you. That's intense. But the body is a slave to the mastermind. I saw this. We had the largest junior academy, as I said, and, I, and I've coached, uh, I don't know how many national champions in, in uh, tennis. I, I believe I'm at seven and and dozens of state champions. But as a junior tennis player or a parent that coaches a junior or helps a junior tennis player or coaches a junior tennis player, if, if the student, the junior is looking up into the stands, um, that's a negative uh, because they're looking up to get some feedback from the past. And that's the zone doesn't reside there. How many parents said you need to try harder? You need to show them. I'm, I'm paying all this money for lessons. I'm, I'm schlepping you all over the country. You got to show me you're trying. Well, how do you do that? You clench your jaw. You, you show physically that you're exerting effort. And the best in the world don't do that. They, they look, uh, I mean, when Federer's in the zone, when uh, Djokovic is in the zone, you could put music to them. They, they look like ballet uh, and musical, almost classical music as they float around the court. It's very fluid. And um, so you need to get the word try. And when you try, where's your energy? Well, Matt, it's on you. It's on you. To be in the zone, all your energy must be sent away from you to the other side of the net. That's how your opponent chokes. He chokes on your energy and um, because of your mindset. And then what happens to your opponent? They try hard. That's how they lose to you and give it to you. So you got to reverse that uh, and make that adjustment swiftly. Self-discipline if you are disciplined and sticking to your tactics, at, at least, uh, you know, if you're down 4-1, change tactics. You know, you're down 3-0, change tactics. But you want to be disciplined to stay with your plan. That produces cortisol to help narrow your focus. When you're concentrating, you have glycogen flowing into the bloodstream. That gives you tunnel vision. You don't care what your parents are thinking or doing, and you're locked in. You're, you're inside the lines of the court. You're not looking in the stands. You're locked in. And uh, optimism, that creates endorphins in the bloodstream, and, and that gives you a feeling nothing can go wrong. Relaxation, jaw hinge, not trying, that produces serotonin. And then last, dopamine, uh, arrives, which you need to get in the zone. That's the enjoyment. Sometimes just a laugh or a smile is all you need to get into the zone. And moving, dancing, uh, jumping up and down, that'll produce dopamine to get you in the zone. Matt, I got one more story. This is crazy. This is Panada. Uh, Panada had never won a grass court match ever. 
great clay court player. Great. Italian Open, French Open, great clay court player. We're now going to Wimbledon, and we're at a tournament prep for Wimbledon. And he turns to me during the match. He gets beat badly. And he turns, he goes, grass is for cows. Why am I out here? So he had this block against grass. So now Wimbledon starts. My guy's never won on grass. And he turns to me, he goes, I want to go home. I go, we got seven days to get ready for Wimbledon. We need to practice on grass. It's my first tournament coaching him, second tournament uh, on grass. And he goes, no, I want to go back to Italy. I, I just, I need to clear my head and I'll, I'll be back in two days. So he leaves. So I'm sitting there alone. I only had one player at that time, him. So he leaves. Heathrow goes on an airplane strike. No planes can come in or out of England. Are you kidding me? So I'm sitting there. He can't come into the country, can't fly in. So it's now a day before Wimbledon. We haven't practiced. It's the day before. And I I can't believe it. So he gets her. We have one day to practice, and it's pouring rain. So instead of going to practice on boards uh, at at an indoor place in Queens Club or wherever, uh, I contact uh, Jan Tyriak. He has an indoor grass court over an hour away from London. And I go, we're we're coming to practice against uh, Velos. And so we're driving on the wrong side of the road. It's pouring rain. My guy hasn't practiced. Grass is for cows. And I'm going over that. I said, I'm writing a book, How Not to Win Wimbledon. And we start laughing. (laughs) And, And Panada's laughing his ass off. And I'm laughing. It's comical. We get to the indoor place for practice. We're laughing almost like we don't care. It's crazy. So he laughs the whole two practice sets, and we crush Velos on grass in practice, laughing. And so the match starts the next day, and, and I said, I said, you want to warm up? And he goes, no, I'm awesome. We don't even warm up during the morning. We don't even practice, and we laugh. He laughs through the whole match and wins his first round match at Wimbledon. Then we said, you want to practice uh, in the off day? No, we laughed. We didn't hit a ball, Matt. He laughed. We laughed. We went out to dinner and laughed of the absurdity of what we were doing. We laughed all the way to the quarterfinals. Wow. All the way to the quarters, all laughing because my guy needed dopamine, which laughter will give you just even a smile. That was a missing agreement uh, ingredient every time he played on grass. He didn't enjoy it. He didn't like it. Uh, that was the missing ingredient. And up until that time, he had never gotten into the zone playing on grass courts. So, so Jim, that, that's a fascinating anecdote on so many levels. One of them is that, you know, to an outsider, all that laughter during that week plus at Wimbledon would suggest to an outsider who, you know, didn't have the access or the up-close perspective you had, Jim, it would suggest to an outsider that that he didn't really care, that Panada didn't really care about what he was doing, but he was just trying to find a way of being that worked for him. And so I'm struck when in my observations of tennis and tennis players, and, you know, I haven't been in a locker room, I haven't covered tournaments in the press box, but, you know, I've watched tennis on television for almost 40 years. And it's one thing that strikes me, Jim, and it gets really into your zone concept is, 
how much tennis players are afraid of success, not failure. And I know that you had a story about a player who never really visualized what it would be like to be a top player. And, and I'm and I'm specifically interested, Jim, how different is it to fear success as opposed to fearing failure? And how does that relate to uh, to being in the zone? Because a lot of for a lot of fans and really and this this goes beyond sports, you know, people like politics, for instance, you know, oh, what an ego that politician has. Well, that politician obviously has to have an ego to play in the at the big boy table of presidential politics and similar that athletes you know, it's not as though they should be arrogant with everything they do and say, but, you know, they do need to have aspirations and they do need to visualize what it's like to be successful. So I'm just struck by how tennis players often seem to fear success just well, I, as much as failure. What, 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 you know, and I know you have some stories about that. I do. I, I, uh, I have a lot of stories uh, in other sports, even in business. So this this relates to everything. Um, in our program, which is called SCORE, Self-Discipline, Concentration, Optimism, Relaxation, Enjoyment, if you wrote the word down on a sheet of paper it, or you see it in your mind's eye, optimism is at the heart and core of the word and our entire system. And that has jurisdiction over confidence, trust, that what I have is enough. Uh, self-esteem, what I think other people uh, think about me, that's all under that jurisdiction. And we use self-awareness and, and we need, use uh, visualization. There's four different types. We can discuss that on another show. Um, but in this particular instance, I, I have a player, he's good. I mean, this guy is world-class. Uh, I'm not going to mention his name. Uh, he's a well-known name. He had beaten the number one player in the world multiple times uh, this particular year. We'd crushed the number two player in the world. Um, I, I, I coached so many guys in the top 10. He would beat them in practice. He would beat them in tournaments, uh, but not at the majors. So everyone knows to be a great, it, it's how you do in the four major tournaments. And I asked him, I said, can you visualize and picture yourself being introduced on a late night talk show as the greatest tennis player in the world. And his answer was swift. I don't care about that. I could care less whether I'm ever on a show. I said, but that's the trapping of success. Can you visualize being a three-story picture of you on a billboard in Times Square with a Nike ad? I don't care about that. That's all BS. I don't care about those kinds of things for success. And I realized that there was a fear not of playing. There was a fear not of uh, beating any of these guys. Uh, they respected him, and they know they knew that he could win. He had a fear of success itself and on how it would change your life. And I will tell you, if you are number one in the world, you have a different lifestyle now. It's not getting there is one thing. Staying there, well, that's a different paradigm. I've had that with so many people. You know, I coached A-Rod for 14 years. Alex Rodriguez, uh, former New York Yankee, Texas Ranger, uh, now commentator, uh, dating J-Lo, blah, blah, blah. And um, we went through that whole thing. Getting there's one thing, uh, staying there is another thing. But you need to not only picture winning, you need to picture, I call it aftermath imagery, 
you need to be, be able to picture how are you going to react to your family, to your friends? Things are going to change for you. Uh, your time is going to be less. You'll have more uh, people in the locker room. You'll have 30 uh, people wanting to interview you. And where if you're ranked 140 of the world, you'll have no one, you know, maybe your mom, but nobody else is going to interview you or cares. So uh, I see that all the time. Most people, uh, they're going to rise to a place where their confidence cannot go any longer. You're going to rise to that point when all of a sudden there's a seed of doubt. And the doubt is not about tennis. It's about you personally being under the scrutiny of everybody watching you in those big moments of truth. I see that with club players where you're playing great, you've beaten the club champion from last year a couple of times during the summer. Now it comes down to the end, you know, in September, the club championship. You're in the finals against the reigning club champion. You know, you choke your brains out and you don't execute the basics. And uh, that's because you didn't visualize not only winning, but how you're going to be after you win, the aftermath of it. So in terms of that process of taking a player through uh, a series of ways to either visualize something or to perhaps calm him or herself down within a competition, you told me a story before we got on this uh, broadcast about how an opponent in a tennis match was uh, being illegally coached. So you found your own way within a match uh, to, you know, send to send not so much a tactical message, but to calm your player down and to get that player into the zone. Tell tell your, our listeners how that came about and, and what it meant for your, or your coaching career and how it opened up some insights. The ma- majority of my signaling, um, and again, it was an unwritten, everybody was doing it. I believe they're still doing it. We saw that with Serena, obviously at the US Open this year. Um, most of my signaling was to increase your self-discipline level or increase your enjoyment level. I would, uh, uh, I had a mustache at the time. I'd rub my mustache and smile, and the player would immediately mimic that. He'd smile and then start moving. That would produce dopamine, uh, and that may be the only ingredient that was missing to get into the zone. We also practice a lot of situations. Uh, I'd have uh, eight guys at a practice. We would practice taking serve 5-4 in the fifth. And that's we would work on closing someone out, focusing just on the basics, making sure our energy was on the other side of the net. Uh, we practiced that quite a bit. Uh, I also realized in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, 2000s, 2010s. In all those decades, I charted 100 matches per decade. Here's what I found out. The player that reached 30 first, the majority of the time, love 15-30, I could get ahead of you 30 love, Matt, every game and still lose 6-0-6-0. True? Yes, indeed. The player that reaches 30 the majority of the time won the match one hundred percent of the time and when i found that out in the 70s i was like you got to be kidding me so when we practice we would practice situations we play sets first to 30 wins the game you could uh 
uh, lose the set and not very many points. And that made you start off really early locked into the zone. How many times have we been down love 30 in a game? Now we narrow our focus. How many times have we uh, been up a break and then we're down love 30? So by practicing first to 30 sets, uh, that helped us really uh, thread game over game over game and create these zone runs where we could run an opponent out of the stadium. So the zone's real. Uh, the score system uh, guaranteed it attracts the zone. And you, you got to ask yourself as a player, what's my weakest link? Do I need more self-discipline? Do I need better tactics, strategy? Do I need better goals? I've had some guys, their goal was just to get to the finals. And guess what? They lost. But their goal wasn't to win. I, I was coaching the Indians in 1997. Nine guys on the Cleveland Indians the goal was to get the World Series. They did. They lost. The goal wasn't to win. My goal was to get to the Pro Tour. I did. I was successful. But then I didn't win. So goal setting, it's important. You've got to see what you want and only think about what you want. And um, do you need more concentration? Does your energy come back on you? Do you think about your backhand, your forehand? Uh, are, are you upset? Are you, are you going over the past of what just happened? <clears throat> Do you need more focus? Do you need more confidence? Do you have doubt? Are you unsure? Do you not finish your shot on a big point? Well, that's a lack of confidence. And, 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 and or do you need more relaxation? Do you need more enjoyment? So you're only strong as the weakest link of those five things. That can change day to day. Uh, but as a tennis player listening right now, how's your score level? What's your weakest link? What do you need to work on? And, um, you know, I've got a, a CD called Golf in the Zone. Uh, excuse me, Tennis in the Zone. I also have a Golf in the Zone, but a Tennis in the Zone uh, CD. And uh, it, it explains all of this. Uh, but you're only as strong as the weakest link of those five markers that make up your overall performance attitude. And uh, that's how I built an entire career, not just in tennis, uh, but everything. But I always come back to tennis because you know why it's the best sport? You can be up on me, Matt, 6-0, I still have a 50-50 chance of winning the next game because the next game is 0-0. It's the only sport built for great comebacks. And there's no time limit. And uh, that's what I love about the sport. And uh, I love watching five setters especially because you can see the mind go up and down of both players. And um, it's always given me the most joy uh, with tennis and watching tennis, playing tennis, and uh, it still remains today. Well, Jim, this is this is a mother load of insights. And uh, I know that, you know, the, the process of instructing uh, anyone in tennis or any sport it's it's not something you can do in one podcast episode or one hour it's really a constant ongoing process but i think this establishes a wonderful foundation uh just before we close just if for the club player just trying to make basic incremental improvements in his or her game what what basic tips can you leave that player with um as he or she tries to hit hit the courts either this weekend or perhaps uh, uh, in the coming spring in a few months? 
Well, this is pretty simple, uh, but I'd go out and rally, and I would make sure that I'm seeing the ball bounce, which would probably be looking through the net, and seeing the ball off my opponent's racket because I want to give myself more time so I can get to the ball and execute the shot. And just go out and do that. You could even say bounce hit uh, on the other side. Pretty simple, pretty basic. I did that with the best in the world at the biggest tournaments in the world. We wanted to get our energy on the other side of the net. Uh, Giving yourself more time, that's really what it's all about. Time's the most important element in the game. Give your opponent less time, but give yourself more time. I'd go out and practice that one tip. and, and just and, and it works in doubles, it works in singles. Watch the ball better on the other side. And while you're doing it, make sure that your jaw's unhinged and you're relaxed and uh, you're gonna immediately pick up your performance. And you haven't changed the stroke. You haven't changed your backhand technique, your forehand, uh, but you've just gotten into the zone. And that's where the zone is by giving yourself more time and keeping your energy on the other side. Well, Jim, thank you so much for for joining our our podcast. We're really thrilled not just to have you on for your own immense storehouse of expertise, but we're really happy to partner with another Radio Influence podcast. So, Jim, uh, I want to wish you and yours a a blessed holiday season. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us, and, and we will definitely encourage our listeners to uh, follow Jim at the Jim Fan Show presented by Radio Influence and also at his website, jimfannon.com. Jim, thank you so much. It, it was a real treat. Matt, happy holidays to you and all the listeners. Uh, uh, keep your uh, keep keep in the zone, everybody. Be in that zone. That's the only place to be. And uh, hopefully uh, everyone listening will start playing tennis in the zone. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thank you, Jim. So you can listen to the Tennis with an Accent podcast at Google Play, Stitcher, RadioInfluence.com, and iTunes and Apple Podcasts, where I encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast, but also the Jim Fannin Show and the other family of Radio Influence podcasts. This is Matt Zemek. We'll see you next week on the Tennis with an Accent podcast. <laughs>